0: Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 sales and marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Hello, this is Perry Marshall and I am here with a very interesting character. This is Esther O'Reilly and uh, she is a very witty, talented writer and blogger and uh, she seems to have made herself slightly famous with her commentary about Jordan Peterson. And so we'll get to Jordan sooner or later. There's a lot of interesting things to talk about there. But first, after reading quite a few of her blog posts and listening to some programs that she's been on, I thought, well, this is actually a very interesting person and this Interesting stir fry of mathematics, philosophy, theology, social commentary, and, uh, you know, the occasional snarky remark. Um, <laughs> lots of fun. Um, very witty writing. And and so, it's like, well, mm-hmm. I, I think I should talk to this gal. So, um, quite a few months ago, I reached out and eventually happened. She's pretty busy. So... Esther O'Reilly, welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast. I'm really glad to be talking to you today.
1: Thank you, Perry. Feelings mutual.
0: Okay, so why are you personally so interested in this? And when I say this, I mean the intersection of mathematics and philosophy and theology and, you know, how the world is currently constructed and the people that are influencing it, you're interested in all this, there's got to be some origin story of, okay, it's one thing to have a skill set, and I'm sure you've got degrees and all that kind of stuff, obviously, but, you know, something must have happened or there had to be some formative experiences. You must be thinking of one or two. I mean, give us a, a window into... The real Esther O'Reilly. How did this happen, anyway?
1: Sure. Well, I suppose I could say my formative experience was being homeschooled.
0: Um, I homeschool a... my kids, so
1: there you yeah. go. Yeah. yeah, I was raised in a, a very, very serious Christian home. But when I say homeschooled, you know, I fall outside of a lot of the categories that people might want to foist on me when they think uh, homeschooling. So a lot of people think you yeah, know, narrow, limited, stunted, right. that sort of thing. Yeah, all those, so, sta- yeah. Right. right. So, but but for me, right, exactly. But for me, homeschooled, it meant things like starting to learn Latin at age five. It mm. meant reading The Lord of the Rings at Sherlock Holmes at age eight. It meant writing research papers on everything from jazz music to military history. It yeah. meant studying Shakespeare, T.S. Eliot, and Milton, and Marilyn Robinson, and Charles Williams at, all these people before I even got out of high school. So, you know, really, I got the kind of pre-college education that a lot of people fantasize about, you know. So I knew very early on that I was very passionate about writing. I sort of wrote as I breathed. It wasn't really something I ever remember not doing. Mm -hmm. So that was nurtured in me and cultivated and trained and shaped and encouraged from you know, little Tychdom on up. So, I first started a very small blog at the end of high school. Actually, it was focused on Southern gospel music, of all things. Like, so it was just this this little niche thing. But occasionally, I wrote about other stuff. And then, as I got into college and things, I realized, you know, I, I'd really like to see if I could turn this into something uh, that would produce publishable work that people might want to read. So that meant I had to get busy and start trying to hone my craft. So I started trying to pull on this deep well of all the knowledge I had and all the things that I was interested in. So thinking about all the literature that I loved, all the history that I loved, and all the lessons that had been instilled in me, and trying to see if I could think of original things to say about stuff that mattered. And over time, I realized that I did. So I'd already been freelancing some before the whole Peterson wave kind of hit. So I had some experience there. But this past year and a half or so has really been a whirlwind. You know, I've really come kind of into my own on social media and all that sort of thing. And all sorts of doors have been opening in quick succession. And so, you know, a lot of people ask me, what, how do I do this? I want to do what you do, that sort of <laughs> thing. Yeah. I don't really have a quick answer. This has been, you know, very, very long. There's a big iceberg underneath this of, yes. uh, you know, of me thinking and practicing and thinking and practicing some more. And so, you know, I don't have a quick, satisfying answer. <laughs> when people come to me for advice, I'm like, be homeschooled. <laughs> what do I say? You know?
0: <laughs> Look, I totally get it because what you're describing is a very, very organic education yeah, You know, it's kind of like, well, how about, yeah, I know those multivitamins have like vitamin C and vitamin B and vitamin D and all that, but how about you like eat a real salad, right? Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> and exactly. And that's
0: exactly what you're talking about. And yeah, there's these silly stereotypes about homeschoolers, but there's a reason why homeschoolers consistently land in the 80th percentile. And I've homeschooled all my kids and I, I would say we created our version our very idiosyncratic version of Harvard of homeschooling. And if our kids needed voice lessons or if the kids needed a dance coach or a vocal coach, or, you know, Xander's interested in foundries or, or whatever, you know, or violin lessons, like whatever crazy thing that it is, well you indulge it and you just go as deep as you want to go into that. And eventually it ends up touching everything. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so. I was also going to say that I, I had instilled in me very early on a, a spirit of intellectual curiosity. So questions were always encouraged. We would debate and discuss stuff around the dinner table. And so whatever I wanted to know more about, my folks would try to answer me as honestly as possible. And if they didn't quite have a complete answer, they would say, here's how you can do more research and think about it some more, but here's the best answer we have at the moment. So. You know that's always kind of given me a drive to learn more, and I think also that I, I like to describe myself as a student of human nature. That's just sort of a lifelong kind of passion of mine is to try to understand people, to understand what makes people tick and what makes people interesting. So that uh, converges with my passion as a writer because I'm always trying to get under the skin of things. There.
0: So, when did you start getting agitated? or frustrated with the current state of things? Because I think, you know, you're not just passively commenting or passing along some news. You have a definite point of view. You have an, a definite opinion. You know, what's the burn come from?
1: Well, that I mean, the state of things, that's, that's a huge uh, <laughs> huge umbrella, you know. Do you want to, like, pick well, this up? big in well, particular.
0: Okay, so you have a theological bent, but you also have a certain amount of impatience for just, you know, lousy arguments or lousy thinking, okay? Yes. You, you're clearly a Christian, but clearly you have some axes to happily grind about, you know, what's right and wrong about that world. Well, so there's got to be some story when you're 10, 12, 15, 18, where you're like, you know, I'm gonna I am gonna take things on because <laughs> I am pissed off about something. Like what's you, that? You, give me give know, me a story.
1: You know what? I don't know if I can exactly give you a story because you know, I don't have a church that I'm mad at. I don't have like a bad experience with some evangelical pastor or something like that that I can uh you know pull out as an origin story. But I do have a naturally sort of contrarian personality. So my folks are both very maverick, Mm -hmm. free thinking, freewheeling types. So they just sort of generally taught me to be that way and to not like want to take people's uh, word for stuff. So my own church experience, I, I actually, I grew up in this very, very quiet little Anglican Catholic church, actually. So I call myself a High Church Baptist, just as a joke to make people <laughs> to make people do a double take. Like, what? Wait, you what? What? So, you know, I think I've always been sort of homeless, both uh, politically and denominationally. So, I, you know, as far as church tradition goes, I I have all this love of liturgical tradition and sacraments and that sort of thing. But I also have a healthy respect for evangelical faith, and I definitely get very irritated very quickly with certain church denominations and certain attitudes and kind of shallow thinking and a not cultivating of the life of the mind enough that sort of thing as far as culture and politics um, yes i've definitely been a a culture watcher for for a long time and my folks have as well and so you know in a sense my folks were sort of they were kind of like intellectual dark web before intellectual dark web was a thing exactly so you know we are growing up our bookshelves were filled with stuff by you know Thomas Sowell and David Berlinski and all these these kinds of renegade thinkers. So then coming in and discovering the IDW guys, I was like, oh, these are my guys. You know, or yeah. maybe not in maybe not in all respects, but mm-hmm. it's like, oh, sure, I kind of fit right in here. This is not new to me at all. You know, but you know, I think I would say as far as what's unique to me about my approach is that I um, I advocate very passionately for christians to have sort of integrated minds so you know for me being a christian just kind of informs everything that i do everything that i think about and everything that i write and so i never want to be somebody who has one hat for one thing and a different hat for another thing you know i wear the same hat all the time and so that's something i could go on about and, and talk about a lot so You know, I don't know that I have a story in terms of a a catalyzing experience that pissed me off about something, but, you know, just a sort of a lifetime of watching and observing and and definitely, yes, being uh, not pleased at all at various turns that the culture has been taking and then wanting to speak into that.
0: If there was a current in the culture that you could reverse tomorrow, what would be on the top of the list?
1: Mm, There are a lot of those. I think I would say one major current that's been a a lifelong sort of heartbeat for me is uh, culture no longer values the sanctity of life at all stages. And I just think sometimes I call myself a Christian humanist because humanism, it's a word that fudges, you know, Christians can sometimes be like, oh, humanism is bad, right? That means like, well, no, not necessarily. So I think as a culture, our culture has kind of lost its, it's losing its humanity. It's in the process of forgetting what it means to be human and what it means to understand what's sacred about humanity. So there's certain kinds of old school humanists that I feel a certain commonality with. So then I would like to invite them, say, come be a Christian. You'll be more of a humanist than ever before, you know, in some sense. So that's just one thing okay okay
0: we're our culture is in the process of forgetting what it means to be human so yes. take us deep on that what are the symptoms what are little cats in the matrix you know making that little jerking motion what are the telltale signs
1: i think throwaway culture is a good phrase that i i've seen a lot so a sort of either implicit or explicit idea that some people are maybe less valuable than others. And so I think you see that at the margins or the fringes of life, you see it at the beginning and at the end, and you see it when people come to be seen as a burden and it's like they're just sort of draining away the resources of society. So euthanasia is, that's an issue that I keep up with a lot that I try to keep my finger kind of on that pulse And there's one IDW guy who might come up in the course of this named Douglas Murray, who also keeps his finger on that particular Mm. pulse. And so that really has interested me a lot. Mm. It's kind of captured my attention. So you have that. And then, you know, of course, the abortion issue, which is a big hot button issue. But I think euthanasia maybe is not talked about quite as much. And So that's something I'd like to talk about more and kind of raise awareness there. And, um, you know, the targeted elimination of people with Down syndrome and different genetic anomalies, uh, that kind of a thing. I think also touching another third rail. I'm going to touch them all before this yeah, is done. But sure. this whole climate thing, and I think there's a very strong uh, anti-human undercurrent mm. to uh, you know this, this sort of Malthusian Club of Rome uh, type notion. Humans are sort of a cancer on the planet. You know, we're destroying it. Basically, it'd be better off if we just jumped off a cliff and weren't weren't here anymore. At the very least, we should just stop having kids. So you see all these young people out there marching for climate justice, and they're saying, you know, I'm going to voluntarily sterilize myself until we fix the climate because people shouldn't be having kids. It's bad for the planet. So that has, there's a sort of almost religious fervor there. Yes. So another aspect of all of this too, I think, is the deep-seated confusion about gender and sexuality which are integral to what it is to be human, but you have very young kids who are being taught to think that maybe they weren't even born in the right body. So they engage in all kinds of self-harm to try to switch genders, thinking that this is going to satisfy them or fill the void. And then more often than people will admit, it doesn't. And so people are still depressed and miserable and chasing after. Uh, something that they can never seem to find so you know I don't want to go on and on but I think they're all of these different markers point to a loss of what it means to be human and I was going to say that a book that I like along these lines is called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy Hmm. where she sort of tackles all of these things and pulls it together in kind of an interesting way with some some history of ideas that I don't completely agree with but I very much like the spirit of what she's doing. And I think that she sees many of the same things that I do and comes to a lot of the same kinds of conclusions.
0: So when and how did Peterson come on your radar?
1: He came on my radar around February, March of 2018 through the Kathy Newman interview.
0: Oh, yep. Okay. Yeah.
1: So a bit late to the party, you know, I come in and then I, I realized I had to catch up on this bill C-16 stuff and, all these other things. And so I felt like a, a bit of a latecomer, but I tried to make up for lost time.
0: Okay. And so give me like a frame by frame. So somehow you saw that video, then what?
1: So he just immediately caught my eye, you know, very attractive, put together uh, guy keeping his cool with an interviewer who was clearly out of her league, you know, and, and trying to, him down and he just wasn't going to be pinned down. So I thought, you know, not only did he, did he win in some sense, but he won by being very, very measured and gracious at the same time. So, you know, just seemed unique and that prompted me to want to learn more. So there were a few particular clips of his that I found that really kind of struck me. So I was familiar with William Lane Craig and I saw that he'd done a dialogue with him so I went and I looked that up and that kind of intrigued me even though Craig is a much clearer thinker and kind of had his ducks in a row much more than Peterson. Peterson was still a very compelling speaker and then I also began finding clips where he talked about the book the 12 rules book and I think what struck me very early on was this very human core to the guy um so he didn't seem to have a problem with, I mean, quite emotional in public. It's unusual for speakers of his distinction, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember learning about uh, this uh, sickness that his daughter went through when she was quite young. So he nets that up to final rule of his book, which is to pet a cat whenever you see one in the street. And that becomes this reminder to sort of savor beauty whenever you see it even in the middle of very, very dark times. So he gets quite choked up when he talks about that in public. And so that really touched me. There's also a clip I recommend people look up if they're new to Peterson called His Finest Moment. It's taken from, I think, beginning of 2017. He's lecturing in the University of Canada. And he's just sort of ranting, and he goes off on this disquisition about picking up your cross. And so he's like, yeah, you know, you've probably gotten a rough deal in life. A lot of people have a lot of really rough deals, but you got to pick up your damn suffering and bear it. And you got to be the guy to stand up at your dad's funeral. You can't be whining in a corner because people are depending on you. And you know, look, it's not an accident. The central symbol of Western civilization is a man unjustly hanging on a cross, thinking, oh, my gosh, this guy is just on fire. You know, he's wow and so then from there i found my way to the biblical series and we heard just these amazing wandering meandering things and by the end it's like was this supposed to be about abraham and isaac or because i mean i'm loving it but i'm just saying you know i didn't care you know and and stories that he would share the fact that he was a clinical psychologist he brought this deep well of um, experience and empathy and He would talk about these sort of shattered people that he encountered in his practice. And there was just so much depth of uh, love there for the human condition that really resonated with me. And I'm like, okay, I found another student of human nature, you know, Mm. so that he's like me in that respect. And there's a quote that I love by a great writer named Joseph Conrad he says, the purpose of my work, my writing, is to make you see and perhaps to give you a glimpse of that truth for which you have forgotten to ask. And I think that Peterson, in his work and his speaking, he does that. I think he gives people a glimpse of truth that they forgot to ask for. So that was sort of how I got pulled in. And I, you know, I really haven't stopped. I'm, you know, still fascinated by the guy. I wish he had the bandwidth and the wherewithal to do some more new material, because I think he sort of got caught up in his own wave, and now, you know, with the latest come out in the news, you know, he's got derailed by his wife's illness, and he's always been very open about his struggles with depression, so I was, oh yeah, that's sort of related to all of this, is that he wasn't afraid to go dark, like really, really dark, you know, he was was able to confront these, these sort of hard, hard, dark, nasty corners of human experience. and then being honest about, and uh, oh, by the way, I'm depressed too, I'm clinically depressed. So I know what this is like. I'm not just talking about it from a disinterested third- party perspective. I've actually lived this. So this it gives the impression of a guy who really has skin in the game for whom this is not just playing. this is real life and he's all in he's staking everything on on what he thinks.
0: Well, so it's one thing to think a guy is fascinating, but you're actually also wrestling with his ideas and you're critiquing what he's doing and you know feeling confident enough about what you know at a much younger age to do that. And so where do you feel like he's being less than what he could be.
1: Sure. So, you know, I think a lot of the areas where I see maybe weaknesses in his intellectual project are things that I I don't really fault him for, per se. I understand the trajectory that's kind of led him to where he is now. A friend of mine puts it very well. He says that right now, Peterson is sort of forest gumping his way through the church. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So... He approaches the Bible and he approaches Christianity very much as an outsider, a very, very sincere outsider, but, you know, still a guy who's very much still figuring this out and isn't really acquainted with this deep, deep uh, thought tradition. So there's something refreshing and kind of endearing about that, but it does mean that, you know, a really thoughtful Christian thinker has a lot to say that could correct some, he knows some misimpressions and some, some false ideas that Peterson is be bringing. So, I mean, I'm not particularly interested in bashing Jordan for getting right. Christianity wrong, right. of course. Right. Some people might be, but, you know, that's not me so much. But I would really like to see him attain some more, attain a better understanding and some more depth. So he's kind of got his ideas drawing a lot on Carl Jung, who's, a, right. you know, Jung was – Jung had his ideas, and I think a lot of them are sort of red herrings and wild goose chases, but Peterson has kind of deeply internalized those. And so now this is kind of his frame or the lens through which he sees all religions. Christianity is just another one of those religions. So, another aspect, this gets into a little more nerdy philosophical uh, side, but Peterson's a pragmatist in the the technical philosophical sense of pragmatism. So, this would go back to thinkers like William James or Charles Peirce, American uh, 19th century pragmatists. This means that his idea of what truth means is a little wacky. It's just kind of strange and different. And, you know, when he comes up against guys like Sam Harris, they're like, wait, what are you talking about? I'm not quite following what you're saying when you talk about truth. And I'm not a huge Sam Harris fan, but I'm kind of. <laughs> might kind have of on harris's side on this one it's not really the way that people typically think about what truth means but you know basically in a nutshell peterson's view is if it works it's true or true enough and so mathematically speaking it's like we can never get the exact answer we can only get a really really good approximation and that's got to be good enough to go on with so when peterson looks at christianity he says well I think of this as sort of a Darwinian time-tested body of wisdom and seems to have carried people and carried civilization through history up to this point. So maybe it's like the fence in G.K. Chesterton's terrible. We better have a really, really good reason for wanting to tear this down. So I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that kind of respect. At the same time, I think that he Himself is very nervous or hesitant to come to the point of saying, Oh, and this is literally true, also. You know, this is grounded at something that also actually happened. And I'm more convinced than he is that ultimately you need that. You don't just need to act as if God exists or act as if resurrection is true. That's only going to carry you so far. At a certain point, you have to put your roots down deeper. So
0: I've yeah. got a friend who's, well, I don't really know that much about his spiritual journey, but you know he uh, is not a Christian anyway. And but he's really fascinated with Peterson. And and I told the guy, I said, look, if Christianity was just a set of archetypes, it would have never, remotely, possibly lasted as long as it has. Um, yeah. So yeah. maybe you might say that the Bible is way deeper than Carl Jung. So yep. <laughs> so you're a mathematician, so you'll appreciate this. In mathematics, there's this thing called a, a Poincaré circle. And it's like you have a circle, and you're going to take an entire universe and squash it into the circle. Yeah. And so everything will fit into the circle. And you can sort of do that. but. Yeah. It's almost like having, a, it's like if you take Christianity or Ju, the whole Judeo Christian tradition and squeeze it into a Poincare circle of Carl Jung, it's actually getting a little backwards.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. And the problem with Peterson is, you know, Peterson's, I think, a genuinely open guy, but he's also a pretty stubborn guy. And so he, <laughs> you know, he, he once said in an interview the way that I sort of assimilate knowledge is, I look at my project or my theory, and I find the place in my project where that new piece of knowledge is going to fit.
0: Hmm.
1: And right. yeah, right. That, but that, I'm like, that fits
0: the analogy really well. It's...
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, but then I want to come along and suggest, well, what if you kind of need to tear down like half of your project and rebuild it again? You know, <laughs> how are you going to deal with that? You know,
0: you know he, I would guess he's probably willing to do that. He's done it before. Usually if somebody's done it before, they're willing to do it again. When I hear about his story of, well, gee, it was nineteen eighty-five and we were in the middle of the Cold War and I didn't understand how this was possible and and I realized that I probably didn't know anything and you know, and he went down this rabbit hole, that makes total sense. And probably his biggest problem now is well, when you're doing four interviews every day and you're flying all over the country, I mean, I kind of get that. I mean, I'm a busy business guy. I know how, I know lots of people on the lecture circuit and whatever. It, it's an all-consuming thing. I'm not sure how you deconstruct your worldview and build it all over again while you're you're doing that. And that's not a criticism at all. Um,
1: yeah, I feel the same way. And I mean, I happen to know back channel stuff. I happen to know that he was very happy and enthusiastic at the idea of discussing the resurrection, for example, with what might've been Gary Habermas might've been, but you know, he had, he he had to say, look, I really want to have this conversation, but you're going to have to give me some time because I'm just so slammed. And that was even before his wife suddenly became ill and almost, you know, so I, you know, I almost wish he would like stop writing books or stop touring and, just you know, sort of go go hide in a cabin in the woods and read about 50 books and do Skype sessions with different people and, and give himself space to yeah. process this and figure it out. Because I agree with you. I don't think it's that he's, he's unwilling to do it. But it's a kind of process that can't happen overnight and on the fly, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, you said in a blog post something like, it's really easy to spit out 87 questions in 90 seconds, that each of which would take you 10 pages to respond to, right?
1: Yes. And, uh, you know, I heard you, uh, one of your podcasts, you said the exact same thing. And I thought, yes, yes, this is true.
0: And these things take time to process. And yeah, yeah. you can't, I mean, I went through a period where. I was questioning everything and I don't know if I consciously realized that this but at least at some level I realized dude you can't digest this much stuff all at once you have to like block some of it off set it aside and like take things a spoonful at a time which is well in fact moment of clarity it's exactly what I did when I got into the Evolution 2.0 project, which was, I am going to take 90% of this and completely coordinate off and not even think about it anymore, and I'm just going to deal with this 10% that I currently have the tools to deal with. And yeah, it's a big ask, and especially for a true thinker, right? So Mm -hmm. if you have a, I mean, I'm always impressed at, the huge breadth of things that Jordan will pull together in a lecture. It's like all these weird little topics and everything. Well,
1: yeah, some people don't like it. I love it, but some people get get annoyed by it. I'm sure
0: the the reasons people love Jordan and the reason people hate him are the same list.
1: (laughs) Exactly, yes, absolutely.
0: You know, some people are going to like it. I love it. It's great for my ADHD. But when you have that many data points, that are already assimilated, then you bring one... If you bring one new thing in that's foundational, it will move everything around. It's not going to just... You're not just going to add it on top because some things are deep down at the roots at the bottom and they're going to change everything.
1: Right, right. That's terrifying, you know, especially when you're 50-some years old. You know, people don't usually... Do a complete one eighty and change their minds about foundational stuff when they're going on sixty. It's an unusual thing,
0: you right? Know? But I think um, one of the elements that I think is going on here, I think he's he's creating a demilitarized zone where the person who is exploring and questioning and not sure is safe precisely because the fact is Jordan is trying to figure it out too. Right. He never even suggests that he has it all figured out. Right. And this is, we live in an age where claiming to have it all figured out does not sell very well. I think the uncertainty of generation y and generation z or whatever it is that you want to call them is like that's the zeitgeist
1: yes definitely and for me you know honestly perry the most rewarding aspect of this whole thing it's not the fact that i've had articles tweeted out by peterson and read hundreds of thousands of times it's not that i've been on unbelievable or all these cool things it's the conversations i've been able to have because yeah people who know that I'm into Peterson have begun coming to me and asking me questions. And, you know, I've had more conversations with people who aren't Christians this past year and a half than like ever in my life before. Mm -hmm. It seems like probably, Mm -hmm. you know, and I try to answer their questions as best I can. I'm honest about where I think Jordan is still missing something, but they appreciate that. And there are a lot of people, maybe especially younger guys you know, I don't want to play too much into the stereotype of Peterson's demographic, but there are a lot of, I would say, younger guys, including some younger millennials as well, who are kind of peeking back into the church doors. Like, I think I might be sort of interested in this now, but I still don't really know if I want to commit. Can we just sort of talk about it? It's like, Mm -hmm. yes, sure. Come in. Here's a chair. (laughs) You know?
0: Well, I remember when I was 19, I went to this thing called the Urbana Missions Conference, and it's this huge thing, and there was 19,000 people in the auditorium, and they served communion. And while they were doing this, it was completely silent. You could hear a pin drop with 19,000 people in this huge place. And it was one of the most sacred experiences i've ever had it it really it caught me off guard um how numinous it was Hmm. and i have had the same feeling multiple times listening to jordan talk to an audience yes and
1: he's a preacher that's what yes. He is, essentially. Yes. Yeah.
0: Okay. A preacher in disguise. You know, in the Hebrew Bible, you know, you have this guy Cyrus. And Cyrus is yes. the Persian king who rebuilds Babylon. And, and what the prophet Isaiah says to Cyrus is, I'm greatly, greatly paraphrasing, but it's kind of like, you're not in this club, and you didn't come looking for this, but you're rebuilding Jerusalem.
1: So it's really interesting that you should say that about Cyrus, because that's an analogy that I've heard before. And I also use the analogy of the noble pagan. And for me, I'm very strongly reminded of the character of Emeth in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. So who Emmet is, is he's a younger guy from the Cowermen side. So he's not a Narnian, you know, he's not part of the in-group. And in fact, he worships the god Tash. And he says, that's who I've been looking for all my life. But then when he discovers Aslan, he realizes, oh, that's who I've actually been looking for. So everything that's good, everything that's beautiful and true. I wanted the good, the true, and the beautiful. I was just calling it Tash all this time. But now I know that that's actually Aslan. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what Peterson is. He wants the good. He's looking for the good, but he doesn't have a name for it yet.
0: Yeah, and so I feel like a lot of Christians are typically trained to go, okay, so is he one of us? You know, Donald Trump patted his hand on a Bible, so yeah, he's one of us, right? Or, you know, and then somebody <laughs> else, if, if they won't, you know, and I just don't think uh, that's a useful way of dealing with the world. I think you you don't listen to what people say, you watch what they do, and you watch the effects of the things that they do, and you embrace the good where you find it. And, uh, you know, it's kind of this separation that people do. And I I just don't think it's very helpful at all. So.
1: No, and you were asking, you know, how does my own sort of origin story or whatnot kind of play into this? And I would say that, you know, it plays into it because I was taught how to think and I was taught how to read well and I was taught how to appreciate other thinkers and to appreciate the good wherever I found it whether or not the thing I was engaging with fell nicely into my particular box or my particular categories, you know.
0: So the way the world is right now is it the end of the beginning, or is it the beginning of the end?
1: Mm. Oh, there's a good question. That open-ended, nice question. I think yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is both.
0: <laughs> Continue. Riff, where do you want to go with that?
1: Well, you know, I think I would say it depends on where you look, really. You know, I think it's easy to be pessimistic, because there are a lot of ways in which i think people who love the good the true and the beautiful are on the losing side of things you know i have no illusions that oh if we can just get the right president that we could just get the right justices and then we'll overturn everything and we can roll back the clock and it'll be great you know i tend to be very you know i'm a marsh wiggle at heart i'm like no probably won't make much difference anyway you know uh, but that doesn't matter. You know, that's not why we fight. We fight because lost causes are worth fighting for. At the same time, I see new beginnings in a lot of different places. And I think this Peterson moment is one place where I see it, because one guy who's become a really good friend is a guy named Job, funny enough, who comes from the Netherlands. And uh, he's sort of, to me, he's sort of the avatar of that post-Christian nihilistic Europe. You know, it's the sort of shell of what it used to be. Mm-hmm. So then he came to Peterson nihilistic, depressed, not really seeing meaning in life. And then Peterson began lifting that veil and helping him to see things. And so now he began binging on C.S. Lewis. He wants to know more. He and I go at it constantly. And he's starting to understand what it might mean to believe in God. And he's starting to see who Jesus might have been, you know. And so just that one guy, you know, but it's like a little green sprout in this very, very dry soil. And if I can help to water it, even some, then for me, that's a new beginning and that's a victory. And I think he's not the only one. I think that there are other little sprouts kind of popping up. And so for me, that's the start of something new and very, very beautiful.
0: Well, I felt similar about my brother so you know he was a missionary and he bailed on the whole entire thing in 2004 and a couple years ago he said to me listening to Jordan Peterson's Old Testament series made me not feel stupid anymore for being obsessed with these stories and I think there's a great value in a demilitarized zone where people can soak in new ideas and new worldviews without feeling like they're being pushed by an agenda. You know, everybody's got an agenda. And it's really nice when it's like, well, okay, so we might have an agenda of getting rid of Bill C-16, but I'm not in an agenda of, you know, being railroaded into some particular way of thinking about faith Or whatever. I find the archetypal frame of reading some of these stories actually quite useful because it relieves you of having to connect a lot of dots that can be very difficult to connect. You can just, uh, so like years ago when I was running a seeker small group, which was basically a Bible study for people who don't believe the Bible and can't be you don't get to assume that anybody believes anything. Right. We said, well, let's read the first few chapters of Genesis. And one of the smartest things I've ever done, I said, so we're going to read this and we're going to take it apart. And, you know, we're going to dig really deep into this, but I don't care if you think it's real or allegorical or whatever. Like, we're just going to read it. And the story had its own gravity it did things that no apologist could ever do. You just needed to unpack it. And it was like that C.S. Lewis has this saying, you don't need to defend a lion, you just have to let him out of his cage.
1: Yeah, and I think that with the biblical series, that's what we saw with Peterson, is that he was just like, I mean, oh, look, here's the Bible. I'm just going to read it and kind of see if people show up to hear about it and I listened to your brother's talk and he Cain and Abel was was one that struck him in particular that he talks about yeah in his episode and he kind of talks about how the Sam Harris's of the world are sort of draining that story of all of its color right you know in some sense it's so it's like what is this? This is a bunch of cobbled together Bronze Age fairy tales about some stupid sky daddy who, right. you know, blah blah blah, all the pejorative stuff, you know. And if right, <laughs> if
0: if you've ever gone deep into this literature, that is your first signal that you're talking to a very ignorant person. Yes. Right. Yes. It's like okay, so. This is the most dissected, most analyzed, most obsessed of, over um, piece of literature by far on the entire planet. And you're really going to dismiss it that easily? So right. What else are you not telling the truth about? I mean, that's...
1: <laughs> yeah, people don't get it. You know, Sam Harris goes, well, but it, I mean, couldn't you just swap in any other religion? I mean, why aren't you out there talking about... Muhammad's winged horse flying or something it's like okay you don't get it <laughs> you just don't understand how these stories are resonating what they do to people how, What they reveal about us yeah. now here and now who we are as human beings you know it's so a then I think to bring this back around to the beginning it's I think Peterson is reminding us what humanness is and Grabbing another little phrase from C.S. Lewis, The Abolition of Man, I think he's uh, creating men with chests in the sense of men who are capable of being moved by things, men who can be touched, men who can feel deeply and resonate with the power of story,
0: you know. So I heard a a podcast where you were having a very sounded like productive conversation with an atheist guy's A YouTube thing. I forget his name.
1: Uh, That's BS. I'll plug it here for anyone because he could use a few more viewers.
0: Okay. (laughs) Well, okay. Plug it. Like, why should we listen to that? Tell us more.
1: Oh well, I mean, I don't keep up with it a whole lot myself, but I did really enjoy that conversation that we had, and I thought he was a really thoughtful, gracious host. And so it, you know, definitely wasn't what people might come to expect from. A Christian and an atheist Mm -hmm. talking about stuff you know so yeah his name's Jordan Myers and he just likes to listen to what people have to say and he asked me I thought very fair questions and gave me ample space and time to answer and I think was sort of interested and a little surprised but in a good way to hear how I answered some things differently from other people that he knew because he grew up in you know a, a kind of a background where people weren't quite sure what to do with his questions and that was frustrating for him I think and so he enjoyed encountering a different point of view.
0: So he's obviously not of the new atheist ilk.
1: Well I think in some ways he might be but he recognizes I think the older that he gets that it's easier to have productive conversations with somebody when you don't start by dismissing them and putting them down, you know?
0: Well, so do you see that trend on the rise? I mean, you know, you're having a lot of conversations with a lot of people. So how do you feel like the winds are changing right now?
1: So there's a different YouTube guy named Adam Friended, and he doesn't like anti-theists, he calls him. He himself is an atheist, but he's not an anti-theist atheist. Yeah. So that means that he thinks that there's a lot of good in Christianity, and people like Dawkins and Harris and Hitchens were wrong to just say that it's this scourge on the planet. They don't really know what they're talking about when they say that. And so he's been really open about inviting Christians like me to come on his channel and, and talk about all this stuff. And then Brett Weinstein and Alistair McGrath recently had a debate on Unbelievable, which I had a little bit of something to do with, because I told Justin he should probably bring uh, a Weinstein or two onto his show and kind of get into this dark web thing. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of neat. I feel pretty good about that. Good. Um, And so that was a really interesting conversation. I thought McGrath was very, very polite, maybe a little bit too polite. I could have wished for some more, a little bit more of an edge at the end of the day, though, I suppose what I would say about this is this is nice and it definitely makes for some fun conversations, some more pleasant conversations than the four horsemen wanted to have. But I do feel as if there is a certain bout of kicking the can down the road about it all, you know. So, you know, there's a sense in which even though Harris, the dockets, those guys were extraordinarily nasty and abrasive and ungracious they did have a kind of a sense of the stakes of the game. You know what I mean? Like they were at least ready to come out and say, well, okay, look, you know, here's what you're claiming. If this is true, here's what it would mean. And I'm going to take you on right there. Let's just have this out right now. Meet me out back behind the bar, you know? (laughs) And uh, there's a part of me that sort of likes that, even though it's kind of mean and it's not as nice, you know, it's not as gracious as, You could say it's a new atheist versus new pragmatist approach, you know. So what I would like to see is sort of a bit of a sense of progress. You know, it's like, I'm happy to have the conversations, but I also want to move things forward and eventually come back to what I feel like is ultimately the point of all of this, you know.
0: Okay, so what you're drawing a distinction between civility and definitive truths.
1: I don't know that I would say I'm drawing a distinction. I suppose you're you're asking, why can't we have both?
0: You well, know? right, right. Like right. one, right. so one of them is into definitive truths like Sam Harris, but right. they're not polite, right? The other yeah. is polite, but it's all this gray wash.
1: Yeah, I do kind of see that, I think. And I think you, you see that if you listen to Brett Weinstein and Alistair McGrath, you know, where Brett is kind of uh, very, very nice, but kind of a little condescending you know he's like well I don't want to you know religion it's important to people now people might need to change some things but you know let's recognize the pragmatic benefits that it's had and blah 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 you know yeah
0: well and that's that's par for the course for you know most polite academics Uh, they really would not entertain the possibility that any of this is actually true Right. right well we're way too sophisticated for that. I have a friend who well, you know, I'll just say it. So, very good friend of mine, Richard Koch, K O C H, and he wrote a book called So, Richard is very close to being a billionaire. He's one of the smartest people I know. He's a polymath. He's written books, he's he's written some of the most underrated fantastic business books. But then he's also written other kind of books. And one of them is called Suicide of the West. And it is a outstanding, uh, so he's not a Christian. He would categorize himself as a Gnostic, as in like 2,000 years ago, G-N-O-S-T-I-C guy. Okay, which is fair bit different from a traditional Christian. He wouldn't claim traditional Christianity. But in Suicide of the West, he says there are these six things that created Western civilization. And I can't rattle them all off just off the top of my head. But basically probably four out of six more or less come out of Christianity, okay? And he went to school at Oxford and and got an MBA at Wharton. I mean, so he I mean he's a he's a very good scholar and he does one of the best jobs of anybody of making a case for Christianity being the pillars of Western civilization as we know it. Equality and science and, and all of that. And he nails it. And I love the fact that it's a non-Christian making these points because it's just kind of naturally more credible. Um,
1: yeah. I was going to say there's another writer I really like named uh, Tom Holland. He's a British historian, mm-hmm. thinker, and he's been really sort of obsessed with this same thing mm-hmm. in the past few years. And he has a new book coming out called Dominion, um, how Christianity changed the world or something like that. And so he's making that exact same kind of point. It's like, look, listen, everyone, not Christians, I'm not a Christian, but you have to understand Christianity is the water in which Western civilization swims. Yes. You can't you can't be Stephen Pinker and come along going enlightenment now, enlightenment now, da da da. So much for religion. It's like you can't have enlightenment without Christianity. I hate to Sorry you had to find out this way, Stephen Pinker, you know. So <laughs>
0: <Right>. <laughs> Well, I said to Richard, I know that you're like too smart to believe this.
1: Right, okay? right. Yeah, like, I yeah. get it.
0: I've heard this before. But I said, you don't get the structure without the axioms. Right? It's yes. like, the reason that we have equality in Western civilization is that we believe that people are made in the image of God and we believe that people have eternal souls. Okay? Like, that's the whole yeah, basis right. of it. Okay? So if you take away that away, now what you have is a set of arbitrary things that are hanging in midair which is exactly you know yeah. in suicide of the west you go i'm afraid we're losing these things yes but this is exactly. why we're losing them right and, and so, that's
1: that's something peterson talks about peterson says look somewhere along the way we had this amazing idea kind of bubble up that all human beings are equal and made in the image of god and i'm still not really sure where that came from but my god
0: we, <laughs> like, i know where that i know I mean, exactly I know. where that oh, came oh, from Pick oh, Pick me! Like, pick me!
1: But- Peter Peterson's like, uh oh, what what the hell? But man, we better hold on to it for dear life, literally, because if we lose this, we lose everything. That's something that the, the author Douglas Murray talks about quite a bit as well. It's like, Boy, you know, going from belief in God to non belief in God has all kinds of these these ripple effects, including this idea that people are sacred in the eyes of God, because if you cut the legs out from under that, then why should they be sacred in the eyes of man? Anymore.
0: You right, know? right. So I love Richard like an uncle, and we're great friends, but you know, this is where we part, right? And so there you go. <laughs> but I think there's a very good case to be made, and I've made it in podcasts and blog posts that equality came from St. Paul and Jesus, and it didn't exactly. exist before yep. then. Right. So, you know, right. you either have equality or you don't, but it's not something that just hangs in midair. You know, all men are endowed by us with inalienable rights. Like, yeah, well, I can't wait for that to get knocked over. So um, give me a crystal ball. Like, um, uh, two years from now, what kind of conversation do you imagine we might be having in the culture that we probably didn't think we'd be having now? Give me the the Esther O'Reilly... (laughs)
1: <laughs> esther's crystal ball yes about what that my, my math and um, the
0: intellectual dark web how's oh, that oh
1: okay what's well, gonna
0: happen with that
1: well you know to be honest I think the intellectual dark web is already sort of fading as a thing you know I think it's already like a really 2018 kind of a thing you know I see the guys of the idw is sort of going their different ways and started to kind of do their own thinking that it's certain quarters some falling out and fraying and whatnot i think peterson will still be active i think he might have peaked don't quote me on that i'm not absolutely sure but you know i think this past year we may have seen him at his height and i don't know if he'll still be going as strong in a couple of years but what i hope to see is you know i'd like to see in signs it guys like peterson and also douglas murray and maybe eric weinstein some of these guys i'd like to see some more thinking and maybe some growth and development in these kinds of areas and i don't know if we'll see that particularly i think this is the sort of thing that guys like them like to think about privately and aren't necessarily going to be sharing with with all their twitter followers you know so in a couple of years i don't know that we'll be that we'll be talking about the intellectual dark web as a movement or a, a thing so much, but I'm always going to have a kind of an affection for like some of the characters in it and the ways that they've been wrestling with these questions. And my hope is that if we could sort of get them into dialogue with some Christian thinkers that maybe there can be kind of a a back and forth and and a cross-pollination that occurs to where maybe, maybe we can begin to give the sort of smart kids in the room who don't really believe all this stuff. Maybe we can kind of put a stone at their shoe and uh, give them something to think about.
0: Do you have a prediction about the smart kids in the room?
1: Do I have a prediction? You know, um, Two years, you mentioned two years, that's a kind of a small window. So I wouldn't anticipate some huge come to Jesus moment for, you know, for any of these guys in in two years. But, you know, with Peterson in particular and, and how this past year has just kind of done a number on him and everything kind of crashing down and his wife almost dying and him getting hooked on. Benzos and having to go into rehab and all this sort of thing. I hope that there's a recognition that we can't do this on our own, you know, that we can't rely on our strength, our put togetherness, <clears throat> our smarts, our all this stuff, that we have to seek a savior, we have to seek help and security somewhere else beyond ourselves. So that's my hope for Peterson, every, you know, all of these different guys are, are kind of different. Nobody's journey is identical. I think looking at a guy like Eric Weinstein, for instance, he hasn't come up, he's a mathematician. He's sort of like the godfather of the intellectual dark web. He kind of gave it its name, you know, he's troubled when he really stops to think about where morality comes from, you know, what are we even doing here? You know, why does this stuff matter? And why do I keep finding these amazing mathematical objects that seem to be out there for no reason? What is that? What even is that? You know, Mm -hmm. where's that coming from? That bugs him. And I think, you know, Douglas Murray today, another guy, when he visits the persecuted church in Africa and he sees these people who have nothing, who've been attacked by evil Fulani herdsmen, but they're still going to church on Sunday, they're still worshiping, they're still praying. And he's just the sort of atheist in the back row, watching all of this and thinking, what is it? What do these people have that I don't have? What's sustaining them, you know? And could this maybe really, could it be true? You know, is there something I missed? Did I miss a spot, you know? And so, you know, those are just like some snapshots that I've seen from all these different little journeys that I think he made track of. I think God meets people where they are, whether he's meeting you through an intellectual contemplation or through something that hits you at the heart. I think that God is very creative in encountering people and getting their attention. And so that would be my hope that he would get the attention of the smart kids in the room one way or the other.
0: Well, hey, this has been great. Why don't you just tell everybody if if they want to find out more about you or listen or uh, watch something in particular, where would you send them first?
1: Sure. So my blog is called Young Fogie That's on the Pathias Evangelical banner, and I do have a Jordan Peterson tag, and so you can see all the Petersonian stuff that I've done there. And I've done some things at the Federalist and Killette and other spots like this. I tweet regularly. My handle is Esther of Riley. So you know any new thing that i do i always tweet that out i don't have a youtube channel or a podcast yet i've been offered a podcast but i've refused wisely i think it's just not for me right now one project i would like to plug that before i forget i'm contributing to an anthology it's going to be called myth and meaning in jordan peterson and uh, it's put out by lexham press which is a canadian outlet So I've got an essay in there. That'll be coming out hopefully around December. So I'm really proud of that.
0: Well, that's great. Well, Esther, this has been great. Thank you for being a guest and thank you for your stimulating conversation. And we'll have to talk again sometime. Thank you. Thank you, Perry. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com.